Welcome to JFK and the Enduring Secret. I'm your host, Jeff Crudell. everyone and welcome back to the podcast. Today's episode is episode 192 and it's the third episode in a mini-series wander regarding the Secret Service. In the very first episode about the Secret Service, we gave an overview about what we were trying to accomplish. In the most recent episode, we began to explore just exactly what the Warren Commission concluded about the role of the Secret Service in protecting the President and how such deficiencies in their protection contributed to his demise. In the last episode, we focused on the first part of Chapter 8 of the Warren Commission, which really dealt with a discussion around the overall structure of the Protective Research Section, or PRS. In today's episode, we are going to specifically address what it says in the next section of Chapter 8 that addresses information known about Lee Harvey Oswald prior to the assassination. Just what did the Secret Service know about Lee Harvey Oswald that may or may not have resulted in a difference of outcomes in this tragic circumstance? As I said at the outset of this wonder, it is important to have a construct to evaluate the involvement of the Secret Service and to try to understand whether the obvious shortfalls in the way that they dealt with presidential security were more than just administratively problematic. Was there a conspiracy? Were they part of some sort of conspiracy or was an element at least of the Secret Service part of some sort of conspiracy? Well, we've got a lot more to talk about in episodes coming up. But before we jump to any conclusions, we really have to understand what the government said about the Secret Service's involvement in all of this. So assuming you've listened to the first two episodes, let's jump right into this third episode where we really begin to talk about the details of the crime itself. So without further ado, let's listen to episode 192 of JFK, The Enduring Secret. No information concerning Lee Harvey Oswald appeared in PRS files before the president's trip to Dallas. Well, we might be able to stop right there, because we've answered the question that was supposed to be the topic of this entire episode. But even though that's the lead-off sentence in this part of Chapter 8, there's still lots more to come. Oswald was known to other federal agencies with which the Secret Service maintained intelligence liaison. The FBI had been interested in him, to some degree at least, since the time of his defection in October 1959. 
it had interviewed him twice shortly after his return to the United States, and again a year later at his request, and was investigating him at the time of the assassination. The commission has taken the testimony of bureau agents who interviewed Oswald after his return from the Soviet Union, and prior to November 22, 1963, the agent who was assigned his case at the time of the assassination, the director of the FBI, and the assistant to the director in charge of all investigative activities under the director and associate director. In addition, the director and deputy director of plans for the CIA testified concerning that agency's limited knowledge of Oswald before the assassination. Finally, the commission has reviewed the complete files on Oswald as they existed at the time of the assassination of the Department of State, the Office of Naval Intelligence, the FBI, and the CIA. The information known to the FBI is summarized below. We begin with the period from defection to return to Fort Worth. The FBI opened a file on Oswald in October 1959 when news reports appeared of his defection to the Soviet Union. The file was opened, and I quote, for the purpose of correlating information inasmuch as he was considered a possible security risk in the event he returned to this country. Oswald's defection was also the occasion for the opening of files by the Department of State, CIA, in the Office of Naval Intelligence. Until April 1960, FBI activity consisted of placing in Oswald's file information regarding his relations with the U.S. Embassy in Moscow and background data related largely to his prior military service provided by other agencies. In April 1960, Mrs. Marguerite Oswald and Robert Oswald were interviewed in the course of a routine FBI investigation of transfers of small sums of money from Mrs. Oswald to her son in Russia. During the next two years, the FBI continued to accumulate information and kept itself informed on Oswald's status by periodic reviews of State Department and Office of Naval Intelligence files. In this way, it learned that when Oswald had arrived in the Soviet Union, he had attempted to renounce his U.S. citizenship and applied for Soviet citizenship, had described himself as a Marxist, had said he would give the Soviet Union any useful information he had acquired as a marine radar technician, and had displayed an arrogant and aggressive attitude at the U.S. Embassy. It learned also that Oswald had been discharged from the Marine Corps Reserve as undesirable in August of 1960. In June 1962, the Bureau was advised by the Department of State of Oswald's plan to return to the United States. The Bureau made arrangements to be advised by immigration authorities of his return and instructed the Dallas office to interview him when he got back to determine whether he had been recruited by a Soviet intelligence service. Oswald's file at the Department of State Passport Office was reviewed in June 1962. 
it revealed his letter of January 30, 1962, to Secretary of the Navy Conley, in which he protested his discharge and declared that he would use, and I quote, all means to correct it. The file reflected the department's determination that Oswald had not expatriated himself. Now we'll cover the period from the return to Fort Worth to the move to New Orleans. Oswald was first interviewed by FBI agents John W. Fain and B. Tom Carter on June 26, 1962, in Fort Worth. Agent Fain reported to headquarters that Oswald was impatient and arrogant and unwilling to answer questions regarding his motive for going to the Soviet Union. Oswald, and I quote, denied that he had ever denounced his U.S. citizenship and that he had ever applied for Soviet citizenship specifically. Oswald was, however, willing to discuss his contacts with Soviet authorities. He denied having any involvement with Soviet intelligence agencies and promised to advise the FBI if he heard from them. Agent Fain was not satisfied by this interview and arranged to see Oswald again on August 16, 1962. According to Fain's contemporaneous memorandum in his present recollection, while Oswald remained somewhat evasive at this interview, he was not antagonistic and seemed generally to be settling down. Marina Oswald, however, recalled that her husband was upset by this interview. Oswald again agreed to advise the FBI if he were approached under suspicious circumstances. However, he deprecated the possibility of this happening, particularly since his employment did not involve any sensitive information. Having concluded that Oswald was not a security risk or potentially dangerous or violent, Fain determined that nothing further remained to be done at that time and recommended that the case be placed in a closed status. This is an administrative classification indicating that no further work has been scheduled. It does not preclude the agent in charge of the case from reopening it if he feels that further work should be done. From August 1962 until March 1963, the FBI continued to accumulate information regarding Oswald, but engaged in no active investigation. Agent Fain retired from the FBI in October 1962, and the closed Oswald case was not reassigned. However, pursuant to a regular bureau practice of interviewing certain immigrants from Iron Curtain countries, Fain had been assigned to see Marina Oswald at an appropriate time. This assignment was given to Agent James P. Hosty, Jr., of the Dallas office upon Fain's retirement. In March 1963, while attempting to locate Marina Oswald, Agent Hosty was told by Mrs. M. F. Tobias, a former landlady of the Oswalds at 602 Ellsbeth Street in Dallas, that other tenants had complained because Oswald was drinking to excess and beating his wife. 
This information led Hosty to review Oswald's file, from which he learned that Oswald had become a subscriber to The Worker, a Communist Party publication. Hosty decided that the Lee Harvey Oswald case should be reopened because of the alleged personal difficulties and the contact with the worker. And his recommendation to do that was accepted. He decided, however, not to interview Marina Oswald at that time and merely determined that the Oswalds were living at 214 Neely Street in Dallas. On April 21, 1963, the FBI field office in New York was advised that Oswald was in contact with the Fair Play for Cuba committee in New York, and that he had written to the committee stating that he had distributed its pamphlets on the streets of Dallas. This information did not reach Agent Hostie in Dallas until June. Hostie considered the information to be stale by that time and did not attempt to verify Oswald's reported statement. Under a general bureau request to be on the alert for activities of the Fair Play for Cuba committee, Hostie had inquired earlier and found no evidence that it was functioning in the Dallas area. Now let's move to his time in New Orleans. In the middle of May of 1963, Agent Hostie checked Oswald's last known residence and found that he had moved. Oswald was tentatively located in New Orleans in June, and Hostie asked the New Orleans FBI office to determine Oswald's address and what he was doing. The New Orleans office investigated and located Oswald, learning his address and former place of employment on August 5, 1963. A confidential informant advised the FBI that he was not known to be engaged in Communist Party activities in New Orleans. On June 24, Oswald applied in New Orleans for a passport, stating that he planned to depart by ship for an extended tour of Western European countries, the Soviet Union, Finland, and Poland. The listing for Oswald requiring special treatment in his application was approved on the following day. The FBI had not asked to be informed of any effort by Oswald to obtain a passport, as it might have done under existing procedures, and they did not know of his application, according to the Bureau. What the Bureau said was this, We did not request the State Department to include Oswald on a list, which would have resulted in advising us of any application for a passport, inasmuch as the facts relating to Oswald's activities at that time did not warrant such action. Our investigation of Oswald had disclosed no evidence that Oswald was acting under the instructions or on behalf of any foreign government or instrumentality thereof. On August 9, 1963, Oswald was arrested and jailed by the New Orleans Police Department for disturbing the peace in connection with a street fight which broke out when he was accosted by anti-Castro Cubans while distributing leaflets on behalf of the Fair Play for Cuba committee. On the next day, he asked the New Orleans police to arrange for him to be interviewed by the FBI. The police called the local FBI office, and an agent, John L. Quigley, 
was sent to the police station. Majin quickly did not know of Oswald's prior FBI record when he interviewed him, inasmuch as the police had not given Oswald's name to the Bureau when they called the office. Quigley recalled that Oswald was receptive when questioned about his general background, but less than completely truthful or cooperative when interrogated about the Fair Play for Cuba committee. Quigley testified and said this, When I began asking him specific details with respect to his activities in the Fair Play for Cuba committee in New Orleans as to where meetings were held, who was involved, what occurred, he was reticent to furnish information, reluctant, and actually, as far as I was concerned, was completely evasive on them. In Quigley's judgment, Oswald was probably making a self-serving statement in attempting to explain to me why he was distributing this literature, and for no other reason And when I got to questioning him further, then he felt that his purpose had been served and he wouldn't say anything further. During the interview, Quigley obtained background information from Oswald, which was inconsistent with information already in the Bureau's possession. When Quigley returned to his office, he learned that another Bureau agent, Milton R. Kack, spelled K-A-A-C-K, had been conducting a background investigation of Oswald at the request of Agent Hosty in Dallas. Quigley advised Cack of his interview and gave him a detailed memorandum. Cack was aware of the facts known to the FBI and recognized Oswald's false statements. For example, Oswald claimed that his wife's maiden name was Prosa and that they had been married in Fort Worth and lived there until coming to New Orleans. He had told the New Orleans arresting officers that he had been born in Cuba. Several days later, the Bureau received additional evidence that Oswald had lied to Agent Quigley. On August 22nd, it learned that Oswald had appeared on a radio discussion program on August 21st. William Stuckey, who had appeared on the radio program with Oswald, told the Bureau on August 30th, that Oswald had told him that he had worked and been married in the Soviet Union. Neither these discrepancies nor the fact that Oswald had initiated the FBI interview was considered sufficiently unusual to necessitate another interview. Alan H. Belmont, the assistant to the director of the FBI, stated the Bureau's reasoning in this way. Our interest in this man at this point was to determine whether his activities constituted a threat to the internal security of the country. It was apparent that he had made a self-serving statement to Agent Quigley. It became a matter of record in our files as a part of the case. And if we determined that the course of the investigation required us to clarify or face him down with this information, we would do it at the appropriate time. In other words, he committed no violation of the law by telling us something that wasn't true, and unless this required further investigation at that time, we would handle it in due course, in accord with the whole context of the investigation. 
On August 21, 1963, Bureau headquarters instructed the New Orleans and Dallas field offices to conduct an additional investigation of Oswald in view of the activities which had led to his arrest. FBI informants in the New Orleans area familiar with pro-Castro or Communist Party activity there advised the Bureau that Oswald was unknown in such circles. Now let's turn to events in Dallas. In early September 1963, the FBI transferred the principal responsibility for the Oswald case from the Dallas office to the New Orleans office. Soon after, on October 1, 1963, the FBI was advised by the rental agent for the Oswalds' apartment in New Orleans that they had moved again. According to the information received by the Bureau, they had vacated their apartment and Marina Oswald had departed with their child in a station wagon with Texas registration. On October 3rd, Hostie reopened the case in Dallas to assist the New Orleans office. He checked in Oswald's old neighborhood and throughout the Dallas-Fort Worth area, but was unable to locate Oswald. The next word about Oswald's location was a communication from the CIA to the FBI on October 10th, advising that an individual tentatively identified as Oswald had been in touch with the Soviet embassy in Mexico in early October of 1963. The Bureau had no earlier information suggesting that Oswald had left the United States. The possible contact with the Soviet embassy in Mexico intensified the FBI's interest in learning Oswald's whereabouts. The FBI representative in Mexico City arranged to follow up this information with the CIA and to verify Oswald's entry into Mexico. The CIA message was sent also to the Department of State, where it was reviewed by personnel of the passport office, who knew from Oswald's file that he had sought and obtained a passport on June 25, 1963. The Department of State did not advise either the CIA or the FBI of these facts. On October 25th, the New Orleans office of the FBI learned that, in September, Oswald had given a forwarding address of 2515 West 5th Street, Irving, Texas. After receiving this information on October 29th, Agent Hostie attempted to locate Oswald. On the same day, Hostie interviewed neighbors on 5th Street and learned that the address was that of Mrs. Ruth Payne. He conducted a limited background investigation of the Paynes, intending to interview Mrs. Payne and ask her particularly about Oswald's whereabouts. Having determined that Mrs. Payne was a responsible and reliable citizen, Hostie interviewed her on November 1st. The interview lasted about 20 to 25 minutes. In response to Hostie's inquiries, Mrs. Payne readily admitted that Mrs. Marina Oswald and Lee Oswald's two children were staying with her. She said that Lee Oswald was living somewhere in Dallas. 
She didn't know where. She said it was in the Oak Cliff area, but she didn't have his address. Hosty would go on to say that I asked her if she knew where he worked. After a moment's hesitation, she told me that he worked at the Texas School Book Depository near the downtown area of Dallas. She didn't have the exact address, and it is my recollection that we went to the phone book and looked it up, found it to be 411 Elm Street. Mrs. Payne told Hosty also that Oswald was living alone in Dallas because she did not want him staying at her house, although she was willing to let Oswald visit his wife and children. According to Hosty, Mrs. Payne indicated that she thought she could find out where Oswald was living and would let him know. At this point in the interview, Hosty gave Mrs. Payne his name and office telephone number on a piece of paper. At the end of the interview, Marina Oswald came into the room. When he observed that she seemed quite alarmed about the visit, Hosty assured her, through Mrs. Payne as interpreter, that the FBI would not harm or harass her. On November 4th, Hosty telephoned the Texas School Book Depository and learned that Oswald was working there and that he had given as his address Mrs. Payne's residence in Irving. Hosty took the necessary steps to have the Dallas office of the FBI, rather than the New Orleans office, reestablished as the office with principal responsibility. On November 5th, Hosty was traveling near Mrs. Payne's home and took the occasion to stop by and to ask whether she had any further information. Mrs. Payne had nothing to add to what she had already told him, except that during a visit that past weekend, Oswald had said that he was a Trotskyite communist, and that she found this and similar statements illogical and somewhat amusing. On this occasion, Hosty was at the Payne residence for only a few minutes. During neither interview did Hosty learn Oswald's address or telephone number in Dallas. Mrs. Payne testified that she learned Oswald's telephone number at the Beckley Street rooming house in the middle of October, shortly after Oswald rented the room on October 14th. As discussed in Chapter 6, she failed to report this to Agent Hosty because she thought the FBI was in possession of a great deal of information and certainly would find it very easy to learn where Oswald was living. Hosty did nothing further in connection with the Oswald case until after the assassination. On November 1st, 1963, he had received a copy of the report of the New Orleans office, which contained Agent Quigley's memorandum of the interview in the New Orleans jail on August 10th, and realized immediately that Oswald had given false biographic information. Hosty knew that he would eventually have to investigate this and was, and I quote, quite interested in determining the nature of his contact with the Soviet embassy in Mexico City. When asked what his next step would have been, Hosty replied as follows. Well, I had previously stated I had between 25 and 40 cases assigned to me at any time. I had other matters to take care of. I had now established that 
Lee Oswald was not employed in a sensitive industry, I can now afford to wait until New Orleans forwarded the necessary papers to me to show me I now had all the information. It was then my plan to interview Marina Oswald in detail concerning both herself and her husband's background. The commission went on to question Hostie. Had you planned any steps beyond that point? The answer was no. I would have to wait until I had talked to Marina to see what I could determine, and from there I could make my plans. The commission went on to ask a further question. Did you take any action on this case between November 5th and November 22nd? And Hostie would answer a simple no, sir. The official bureau files confirm Hostie's statement that from November 5th until the assassination, no active investigation was conducted. On November 18th, the FBI learned that Oswald recently had been in communication with the Soviet embassy in Washington and so advised the Dallas office in the ordinary course of business. Agent Hostie received this information on the afternoon of November 22, 1963. Now let's turn to the non-referral of Oswald to the Secret Service. The Commission has considered carefully the question whether the FBI, in view of all the information concerning Oswald and its files, should have alerted the Secret Service to Oswald's presence in Dallas prior to President Kennedy's visit. The Secret Service and the FBI differ as to whether Oswald fell within the category of, and I quote, threats against the president, which should be referred to the Secret Service. Robert I. Bauck, special agent in charge of the Protective Research Section, testified that the information available to the federal government about Oswald before the assassination would, if known to PRS, have made Oswald a subject of concern to the Secret Service. Bauk pointed to a number of characteristics besides Oswald's defection, the cumulative effect of which would have been to alert the Secret Service to potential danger. Bauk would go on to tell the commission this, I would think his continued association with the Russian embassy after his return, his association with the Castro groups would have been of concern to us, a knowledge that he had, I believe, been court-martialed for illegal possession of a gun, of a handgun in the Marines, and that he had owned a weapon and did a good deal of hunting or use of it, perhaps in Russia, plus a number of other items about his disposition and unreliability of character. I think all of those, if we had them together, would have added up to pointing out a pretty bad individual. And I think that, together, had we known that he had a vantage point, it would have seemed obvious. It would have seemed somewhat serious to us. Although I must admit that none of these in themselves would be. It would meet our specific criteria none of them alone. But it is when you begin adding them up to some degree that you begin to get criteria that are meaningful. 
Mr. Bauck pointed out, however, that he had no reason to believe that any one federal agency had access to all this information, including the significant fact that Oswald was employed in a building which overlooked the motorcade route. Agent Hosty testified that he was fully aware of the pending presidential visit to Dallas. He recalled that the special agent in charge of the Dallas office of the FBI, J. Gordon Shanklin, had discussed the president's visit on several occasions, including the regular bi-weekly conference on the morning of November 22nd. And here's what Hosty said about that briefing. Mr. Shanklin advised us, among other things, that in view of the president's visit to Dallas, that if anyone had any indication of any possibility of any acts of violence or any demonstrations against the president or vice president, to immediately notify the Secret Service and confirm it in writing. He had made the same statement about a week prior at another special conference which he had held. I don't recall the exact date. It was about a week prior. In fact, Hosty participated in transmitting to the Secret Service two pieces of information pertaining to the visit. Hosty testified that he did not know until the evening of Thursday, November 21st, that there was to be a motorcade, however, and never realized that the motorcade would pass the Texas School Book Depository Building. He testified that he did not read the newspaper story describing the motorcade route in detail since he was interested only in the fact that the motorcade was coming up Main Street, where maybe I could watch it if I had a chance. Even if he had recalled that Oswald's place of employment was on the president's route, Hostie testified that he would not have cited him to the Secret Service as a potential threat to the president. Hosty interpreted his instructions as requiring some indication that the person planned to have some action against the safety of the President of the United States or the Vice President. In his opinion, none of the information in the FBI files, Oswald's defection, his fair play for Cuba activities in New Orleans, his lies to Agent Quigley, his recent visit to Mexico City, none of that indicated that Oswald was capable of violence. Hosty's initial reaction on hearing that Oswald was a suspect in the assassination was, and I quote, shock, complete surprise, because he had no reason to believe that Oswald was, and I quote, capable or potentially an assassin of the President of the United States. Shortly after Oswald was apprehended and identified, Hosty's superior sent him to observe the interrogation of Oswald. Hosty parked his car in the basement of the police headquarters, and there he met an acquaintance, Lieutenant Jack Revell of the Dallas Police Force. The two men disagree about the conversation which took place between them. They agree that Hosty told Revell that FBI had known about Oswald, and in particular of his presence in Dallas and his employment at the Texas School Book Depository Building. Revell testified that Hosty said that the FBI had information that Oswald was capable of committing this assassination. According to Revell, Hosty indicated that he was going to tell this to Lieutenant Wells of the Homicide and Robbery Bureau. 
Rebell promptly made a memorandum of this conversation in which the quoted statement appears. Ms. Secretary testified that she prepared such a report for him that afternoon. And Chief of Police Jesse E. Curry and District Attorney Henry M. Wade both testified that they saw it later that day. Hosty has unequivocally denied, first by affidavit and then in his testimony before the commission, that he ever said that Oswald was capable of violence or that he had any information suggesting this. The only witness to the conversation was Dallas Police Detective V.J. Bryan, who had accompanied Ravel at the time. Bryan did not hear Hosty make any statement concerning Oswald's capacity to be an assassin. But he did not hear the entire conversation because of the commotion at police headquarters and because he was not within hearing distance at all times. Hostie's interpretation of the prevailing FBI instructions on referrals to the Secret Service was defended before the commission by his superiors. After summarizing the Bureau's investigation interest in Oswald prior to the assassination, J. Edgar Hoover concluded that and I quote, there was nothing up to the time of the assassination that gave any indication that this man was a dangerous character who might do harm to the president or the vice president. Director Hoover emphasized that the first indication of Oswald's capacity for violence was his attempt on General Walker's life, which did not become known to the FBI until after the assassination. Both Director Hoover and his assistant, Alan H. Belmont, stressed also the decision by the Department of State that Oswald should be permitted to return to the United States. Neither believed that the Bureau investigation of him up to November 22nd revealed any information which would have justified referral to the Secret Service. According to Belmont, when Oswald returned from the Soviet Union, Belmont would describe it this way. He indicated that he had learned his lesson, that he was disenchanted with Russia, and that he had a renewed concept, I am paraphrasing, a renewed concept of the American free society. We talked to him twice. He likewise indicated he was disenchanted with Russia. We satisfied ourselves that he had met our requirement, namely to find out whether he had been recruited by Soviet intelligence. The case was closed. We again exhibited interest on the basis of those contacts with the worker, Fair Play for Cuba Committee, both of which are relatively inconsequential. His activities for the Fair Play for Cuba Committee in New Orleans, we knew, were not of real consequence as he was not connected with any organized activity there. The interview with him in jail is not significant from the standpoint of whether he had a propensity for violence. The commission would go on to ask, this is the Quigley interview you are talking about? Belmont would answer, yes. It was a self-serving interview. The visits with the Soviet embassy were evidently for the purpose of securing a visa and he had told us during one of the interviews that he would probably take his wife back to Soviet Russia sometime in the future. He had come back to Dallas. 
Hostie had established that he had a job, he was working, and had told Mrs. Payne that when he got the money, he was going to take an apartment when the baby was old enough. He was going to take an apartment, and the family would live together. He gave evidence of settling down. Nowhere during the course of this investigation or the information that came to us from the other agencies was there any indication of a potential for violence on his part. Consequently, there was no basis for Hostie to go to the Secret Service and advise them of Oswald's presence. As reflected in this testimony, the officials of the FBI believed that there was no data in its files which gave warning that Oswald was a source of danger to President Kennedy. While he had expressed hostility at times toward the State Department, the Marine Corps, and the FBI as agents of the government, so far as the FBI knew, he had not shown any potential for violence. Prior to November 22, 1963, no law enforcement agency had any information to connect Oswald with the attempted shooting of General Walker. It was against this background and consistent with the criteria followed by the FBI prior to November 22 that agents of the FBI in Dallas did not consider Oswald's presence in the Texas School Book Depository building overlooking the motorcade route as a source of danger to the president, and so did not inform the Secret Service of his employment in the depository building. The commission believes, however, that the FBI took an unduly restrictive view of its responsibilities in preventative intelligence work prior to the assassination. The commission appreciates the large volume of cases handled by the FBI, 636,371 investigative matters during fiscal year 1963. There were no Secret Service criteria which specifically required the referral of Oswald's case to the Secret Service. Nor was there any requirement to report the names of the defectors. However, there was much material in the hands of the FBI about Oswald, the knowledge of his defection, his arrogance and hostility to the United States, his pro-Castro tendencies, his lies when interrogated by the FBI, his trip to Mexico where he was in contact with Soviet authorities, his presence in the school book depository job, and its location along the route of the motorcade. All this does seem to amount to enough to have induced and alert agencies such as the FBI possessed of this information to list Oswald as a potential threat to the safety of the president. This conclusion may be tinged with hindsight, but it is stated primarily to direct the thought of those responsible for the future safety of our presidents to the need for a more imaginative and less narrow interpretation of their responsibilities. It is the conclusion of the Commission that even in the absence of Secret Service criteria, which specifically required the referral of such a case as Oswald's to the Secret Service, a more alert and carefully considered treatment of the Oswald case by the Bureau might have brought about such a referral. Had such a review been undertaken by the FBI, there might have been conceivably an additional investigation of the Oswald case 
between November 5th and November 22nd. Agent Hosty testified that several matters brought to his attention in late October and early November, including the visit to the Soviet embassy in Mexico City, required further attention. Under proper procedures, knowledge of the pending presidential visit might have prompted Hostie to have made more vigorous efforts to locate Oswald's rooming house address in Dallas and to interview him regarding these unresolved matters. The formal FBI instructions to its agents outlining the information to be referred to the Secret Service were too narrow at the time of the assassination. While the Secret Service bears the principal responsibility for this failure, the FBI instructions did not reflect fully the Secret Service's need for information regarding potential threats. The handbook referred thus to the, and I quote, the possibility of an attempt against the person or safety of the president. It is clear from Hostie's testimony that this was construed, at least by him, as requiring evidence of a plan or conspiracy to injure the president. Efforts made by the Bureau since the assassination, on the other hand, reflect keen awareness of the necessity of communicating a much wider range of intelligence information to the service. Most important, and notwithstanding that both agencies have professed to the Commission that the liaison between them was close and fully sufficient, the Commission does not believe that the liaison between the FBI and the Secret Service prior to the assassination was as effective as it should have been. The FBI Manual of Instructions provided the following. To ensure adequate and effective liaison arrangements, each special agent in charge should specifically designate an agent or agents to be responsible for developing and maintaining liaison with other federal agencies. This liaison should take into consideration FBI agency, community of interests, location of agency headquarters, and the responsiveness of agency representatives. In each instance, liaison contacts should be developed to include a close, friendly relationship, a mutual understanding of FBI and agency jurisdictions, and an indicated willingness by the agency representative to coordinate activities and to discuss problems of mutual interest. Each field office should determine those federal agencies which are represented locally and with which liaison should be conducted. The testimony reveals that liaison responsibilities in connection with the president's visit were discussed twice officially by the special agent in charge of the FBI in Dallas. As discussed in Chapter 2, some limited information was made available to the Secret Service but there was no fully adequate liaison between the two agencies. Indeed, the commission believes that the liaison between all federal agencies responsible for presidential protection should be improved. Well, there you have it. 53 minutes worth of testimony, and that's what they concluded after the assassination of the president.
that the liaison activities between all the federal agencies could be improved. No kidding. Well, I don't know if you noticed, but out of that sea of sanitized monologue, there was one real pearl. And the pearl was that the commission actually acknowledged that FBI agent James Hosty admitted on the day of the assassination to Jack Revell of the Dallas Police Force that the FBI was in possession of information that indicated that Oswald was capable of this crime. Obviously, by the time Hosty and other FBI officials were put into a position to make an official statement about all of this, well, the narrative had changed a little bit, hadn't it? Folks, you just can't write this stuff. Well, we're going to pause there, and we'll pick it up in episode 193, where we pivot to the next section of chapter 8 and discuss other protective measures and aspects of Secret Service performance. Some interesting tidbits in this one coming up. And just like yesterday, I think it's time for a sandwich. Thank you for listening to episode 192 of JFK, The Enduring Secret. <laughs>